anybody in the room now or ever been a Kansas City Royals fan? I am so sorry for you. <laughs> Remember the name George Brett? Yep. 1984. Were you a Kansas City Royals fan? I bet you were. I was there. In fact, if you were never a Kansas City Royals fan, you probably were in 1984. So uh, uh, in 1984, George Brett... Uh, the Kansas City Royals wanted to keep him as their third baseman. So to do so, they uh, negotiated a rather odd contract. The Royals um, first um, agreed to give him some, um, uh, if he'd signed this contract, they would give him some apartment an apartment complex in Memphis. Now, how did the Royals end up with an apartment complex in Memphis? I don't know that part of the story. But they gave this apartment complex to George Brett, if he would sign, and they gave him the infamous pine tar bat. Now, you'd have to be a Royals fan to appreciate that, probably. Um, uh, he, he used too much pine tar, according to the, to the MLB, back in... Back in 1984, and they uh, called him out on a thing that later they proved kind of wasn't maybe copacetic, but, but he wanted the bat. So part of his signing his contract was he got the bat, and he got an apartment complex. Now that's the weirdest ever arrangement uh, for, for athletics, um, I, I believe I've heard. But, you know, while, while you and I may never sign an agreement giving us a baseball bat in a building, uh, we're familiar with contracts. Don't we deal with them every day? Um, car deals, real estate, insurance, employment, contracts are all around us. Now, we're going to talk today about a very familiar gentleman in the Old Testament, Abram, later, later to be named Abraham by God. He will make a contract or, or a covenant with God. We've been talking about this uh, keeping a promise, or God's part of, of a covenant contract and our part to respond. We're going to talk about that today, and I want to give you a little bit of background on Abraham up to this point. This covenant begins when the Lord calls him at the time, and, and in our passage today, he was known as Abram, to leave his homeland and move to unfamiliar surroundings. God's going to appear to him and say, I want you to go somewhere else. Abraham obeyed, even though, uh, according to Hebrews 11, he didn't even know where he was going. He would get up in the morning, and God would say, uh, Abraham would say, where are we going today? And God would say, I am. He would just say, follow me. And uh, that was about, in, in round numbers, about 2000 B.C. Now, though Abraham's initial obedience was exemplary, his faith journey wasn't always perfect. Now, I, I enjoy that, by the way, because neither is mine. I have days of doubt. No, I'm sure none of you in here do, but occasionally I'll have a day that's filled with doubt. Um, and, and it's interesting to me to track a guy who's known as a father of faith to his people, and really to you and me, um, who had kind of some bumps along the faith journey. By the end of the same chapter where Abram agreed to go with God in, in Genesis 12. By the end of the same chapter, um, he had tried to pass off his wife Sarai as his sister to curry favor with uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt. That's like in the same chapter. Um, Abraham also had to deal with problems involving his nephew Lot. Now, Lot had chosen to live in the vicinity of Sodom. You and I know a little bit about that. 
But when um, Sodom became entangled in a regional war between a coalition of kings, Lot was captured, his family was captured, and Abraham had to lead a commando raid to defeat a coalition and rescue Lot because he loved his nephew a lot. Never mind. I can't even believe I wrote that in my notes. And I said it out loud. Okay, grain of salt. There you go. Or a pillar. Yeah. Uh, following that great victory, Abraham was met by Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, and he was a priest of God Most High. You can read about him in chapter 14. He blessed Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth or a tithe of kind of the proceeds from, from this war. And, uh, as, and, and that's right before where Genesis 15 opens that we're um, kind of dealing with today. The scene has shifted from Abraham's inter interactions with earthly kings to an encounter with the king of kings, the ultimate king, the Lord God Almighty, as we talked about last week. Now, let's begin, if we can, with chapter 15. And uh, Steve Blair, if I can get you to read the first three verses, we're going to see as Genesis opens... Um, Abraham, or Abram at this point, is once again going to deal with the call of God and his faith in God. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what do you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Elijah of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children. Okay, now, John, can I get you to 14, Genesis 14, I'm going to get you to read 21, 22, and 23 from 14. You, I don't think there are any funny names in there, but you might look ahead. I can, do what? Genesis 14, 21, 22, and 23. Now, um, uh, it's interesting that so many times when people meet with God or meet with an angel, what's the first thing God or the angel says? Fear not, don't be afraid. Don't, and that's kind of how this one begins. It begins with a very common uh, command. And that's what to put in your first blank there. God's command is a very common one. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Abraham, Abraham is in a vision. He has a vision here. There are hundreds of times, several times this expression is used. It's used more than a hundred times in the Bible. The idea of, of some person of faith or some person that God is calling having a vision. We're not exactly sure what that means here. But in, in Genesis 15, as Abram has a vision, it's the first time in the Bible that expression is used. It'll be used at least a hundred more times throughout the Bible. So Abram has a vision and in the vision, God says, don't be afraid. And then he begins to call him to something or tell him some things. How does God identify himself? Well, notice he begins by calling himself Abram's shield, his shield. That's a very popular idea, especially in the book of Psalms. If you read, God is my shield, he's my refuge, he's my portion, he's my strength, He's uh, my fortress, all those kinds of things. So that's, that's going to be fairly common later on. That God, that God would refer to himself as Abram's shield is very interesting, especially since he's just come out of a war. All right? So God says, I'm your shield. And then he says something else. Now, to get 
to get a little bit of this, I want us to go back to the chapter where, um, where uh, Abram is um, in the middle of this war. And I want us, uh, John, if you would please, go to verse 21. It's the end of the war. Um, Abram and his servants have been victorious. Uh, and uh, read what God, what kind of happens here. 21, 22, and 23. Okay, now he's talking to the king of Sodom, who Abram has just bailed out, all right? He saved his bacon. Uh, by the way, Abram may not have done a whole lot of bacon, but the guy from Sodom probably did, uh, although we don't know yet, right? So Abram has, has saved the king of Sodom. The, the king of Sodom is appreciative of that, and he comes to Abram and says, what do you want? I'll give you this, I'll give you that. And Abram's response, according to what John read, was what? No thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. Isn't it interesting that just a few verses later, God is in some ways making reference to that, I think. When God says, I know you didn't, he didn't literally say it here, but I can imagine it coming through the conversation. God says to Abram, I know you didn't accept a reward from the king, and then God identifies himself here and says to Abram uh, in the NIV, it's not exactly worded this way in the New American Standard, but in the NIV it says that God said, I will be your reward. I'm your reward. How far along the uh, highway of faith are we when we finally get to the point of saying, God, I don't really need anything today but you about you. Abram was kind of at that place. It was interesting. He didn't want anybody on earth to say, I have made you rich. But God had made him rich. Not in terms of, of uh, resources, although he had a lot of that. But God would be his resource here. God would be um, his uh, reward. I know you turned down a reward Abram, I want you to know, I'll be yours. And so, as verse 2 dawns then, which is just barely into the story, right? Abram kind of responds, okay, Lord, I know you're my reward, but, but. And he begins in verse 2 to talk about his current circumstances. Uh, it could be that he said something, or at least it was inferred um, or implied in his question uh, back to God. So, Lord, what is my reward? I'm your reward. Yeah, but what does that mean? So, if you look with me, I want to go back to chapter 12, and I just, I just want to trek through what a Abraham's current circumstances are, okay? Here's the original promise that when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, here, he, he says here in verse 2, 12 2, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. All right, he's going to make him a great nation, but that requires descendants. Look at verse 7, same chapter, 12, 7. 
The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. Interesting. You got to have descendants before they can inherit stuff, right? There are none yet. All right. Uh, look with me at 1717. Then Abraham fell on his face, God had renamed him by this time, fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? So you got the sense that Abram is, is pushing 100, Sarah's pushing 90, they still don't have a child. 17.7, that's what's going on there. Interesting here, uh, he and Sarah are past childbearing age, quite a bit past childbearing age, at the point where we're reading Help me do the math here. Um, uh, Abram, if Abraham was 75, Sarah was something like 65. And, uh, and there, one more passage, go to 24.2. The only thing Abram can figure out is the closest heir in the household is a household servant. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, this is 24-2, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and he makes him swear he's going to. Uh, interesting, that's the, the beginning of the story where Abraham sends his, his uh, chief steward of the family, a guy by the name of Eliezer, to get a wife for his now son, Isaac. Isn't it interesting? Is that ironic to you? It's kind of ironic to me that he mentions Eliezer here back in 15 when he says, well, maybe Eliezer's going to be my heir here. Maybe that's the deal. So what you've got to recognize here, what you and I've got to recognize is that Abraham has this whole time and will continue for another 25 years or so wrestle with his circumstances. God has promised an heir. I don't have an heir. And it's going to be a long time before I have one. And that just kind of keeps coming up. He bumps up against that every day. And certainly every time he meets with God, his circumstances are kind of here in his face. Now look at verse 3. There is a custom that's talked about here in verse 2 and 3. Uh, this custom that, that Abram has indicated here in, as he said, I am childless and the heir of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. And uh, he begins to talk about that. What, what the custom is of the day um, is that um, uh, it's kind of, kind of an important little piece to, to figure out here. What the custom of the day is, um, uh, is as uh, Abram is wrestling with this, he recognizes that uh, the likely outcome for a childless couple is that they can adopt a household servant or a steward, that's Eliezer in this story, who will care for them and provide proper burial for them when they die. Then the servant inherits whatever's left. So in verse 2, the end of verse 2 and the beginning of 3, Abram is kind of still dealing with that, with this particular custom, and um, and there's kind of a, um, a, a repetition here. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. That's kind of stuck in his mind. That's why I think that it's kind of repeated here. Uh, he, he's going to have to adopt a steward who's a Damascan, who's a Syrian, who will care for, for us in old age. He'll give us a proper burial, and then he'll get whatever's left of, of my nest egg. Abraham's got that all figured out. Let's listen to God's answer in verse 4. Jan, 
you're following us over there. Would you read verse 4, 5, and 6? Interesting. Abraham has mentioned it twice in two verses. I guess Eleazar is the guy. I guess Eleazar is the guy. I guess Eleazar is the guy. And God said, no. No. Your heir will be your own offspring is the implication here. He, God doesn't say when. He doesn't say when. And the years are going to drag on. But God here, and here's the word you need to put in your blank, reassures Abraham. He's told him there will be an heir, and he re repeats that. He's told him that there will be, uh, there will be um, uh, a family that you will father, but he doesn't say when, but he certainly says here, not this way. Ever try to get ahead of God? Nobody in here has ever done that. God got it all figured out. It's funny, um, uh, the, the second verse of Romans 12, which is really important, that um, uh, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, it, it, it says, um, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It, said this, it says that in the NIV. And I always think that's a really interesting translation because what I, what I think sometimes is very common for us is that we will work out God's will for him and then say, oh, Lord, it'll be okay now. You can test and approve this. That's not kind of how it works. Abram had plan B all figured out. And by the way, there will be a plan C. And it wasn't a good one either. And for 25 years, the years are going to drag on. And God continues to reassure Abraham. To, to reassure his concerns. This is the big deal for him. And so by verse 5... The Lord offers Abram a visual aid. What's the visual aid? The stars. The stars. Um, we got to read a couple of passages here. I think it's interesting. Go with me to 22. Go to 22. Here he says, go ahead and count the stars. Now, you think God waited while Abram counted the stars? I don't think that really happened. I think that was kind of a, 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 a kind of little hyperbole that God was using here saying, go ahead and count those. Uh, now, look at 22.17. He gives him another uh, illustration here. Indeed, I'll greatly bless you, and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And, and what else? Sand of the seashore. Go ahead. Have you been to the beach lately? That's kind of a hard thing to do, to, to, uh, to uh, count sand of the seashore. I have my favorite picture these days is a nine-month-old fin, or finny, uh, at the beach with us on um, on Labor Day, with his mouth full of sand, <laughs> loves the feel of it, you know, and crawling. He looked like a crab. You know, at one point, I thought he was one of those baby turtles trying to get back to the sea. You know, it just crawls in. You know, you know what? It looked like there was a lots of sand on this kid, but there was a lot more sand left on that beach. 
Wouldn't it be an interesting uh, thing for you to do if, if God said to you, uh, okay, I'm going to bless you in this way. Go count the grains of sand on the beach. Lord, there's not enough time ever to do that. But that's part of the promise here. He's, he's promising him um, the sand on the seashore. In Hebrews 11, in Hebrews 11, um, we, we kind of get the idea too. Go with me to Hebrews 11, verse 12. It's almost at the end of your Bible. I just like these references. By the way, there are more verses dedicated to Abram and his faith, Abraham, in uh, Hebrews 11 than anybody else in the faith chapter. And I want us to go to 11, um, uh, 11, 12, okay, 11, 12. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that point. Uh, interesting little paragraph, little parentheses there. Uh, therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and as innumerable as the same as by the seashore. So he's quoting there. It, it, literally, the Hebrews writer is quoting from, uh, from Genesis 17, or from Genesis 22 here. Don't, how, many, how many mornings did Abram wake up and say, you know, he's, re he's reciting those promises in his mind, Sand on the seashore. He looks up at the nighttime sky and says, Really, God? Come on. I'm 99. My wife is 74. Come on. Isn't it interesting? Now, by the way, um, I, I put the reference there. I won't read it right now, but I put the reference in there of Galatians 3. Do you know that you at least, the hundred or so of us in this room, are at least a part of the fulfillment of what God was saying to Abraham? Now, now we're, we're kind of Eleazars in this thing, okay? We are grafted in members of the family, but we're members of the family. And, and Paul says... Who, who was from Abraham's seed, Paul is going to say, you know what? The church is Abraham's seed. When you get to whatever, whatever place you're going to church today out here, whether it's uh, on this end or that end or whatever, look around you. Everybody in there who, accept, who has accepted a God's son by faith is, is Abraham's seed. But Paul makes that connection with us. We're part of the sand on the seashore. Part of the stars in the sky that are being promised here. But Abram didn't see that. And for 25 years, uh, most days, he's going to look up and say, you know what? This is getting harder and harder to believe. And yet he still believed. And I'm going to catch that. And we're going to actually skip the money verse of this, verse 6, and I'm going to come back to it. Okay? If you look at verse 17, I'm just going to kind of uh, um, give it to you parenthetically here. Uh, in the intervening verses, God says, uh, I want you to offer a sacrifice to me. That's part of the covenant. I've promised you something. I want you to offer a sacrifice back to me to kind of seal the deal. And so he, he uh, goes and prepares uh, halves of sacrifices, several of them. Cuts them all into two pieces. 
So the pieces here are parts of the sacrifice that are talked about when we get down to verse 17. You can read about them in verse 14 and 15. And God is going to promise then, I won't make us read the big, the big names there, but God is going to promise here, he's going to give not only, he's, he's going to pass between in fire, going to pass between those halves of the sacrifice as a symbol of his presence in this promise, his presence in this covenant, his presence in this contract. And he's going to say to him, um, by verse 18 and on continuing to verse 21, where he's talking about the peoples who now inhabit those lands, he's going to promise him literally the boundaries of the land that he's going to give to him as well. About 400 miles from north to south. It won't be in, in Abram's day, he won't inherit it all. It'll be 400 years or so before his family gets it. But even after that, at about if this is 2000 BC, you could really go forward about 1,000 years and Abraham's son, David, he was a son of Abraham, is gonna kind of increase the boundaries till they include all of this land that's promised here. It happens. The son of promise, Isaac, happens. It'll be a long time. But God keeps his word. The boundaries of Abraham's inheritance are delineated. Now, I want you to go with me to verse six. What I want you to know is that every promise in this passage came to pass. That's my favorite biblical expression, one of my favorite biblical expressions. You know, when I read a fairy tale, it begins with, once upon a time, that's not how Bible stories begin. And it came to pass. Every promise from God to Abram came to pass. Here's the second point of that. Every promise from God was delayed. In fact, part of the point of Hebrews 11 is that so many of these folks who were promised something wonderful in their lifetime did not receive it in their lifetime. Abram did receive a son. Were Isaac's descendants as the sand on the seashore by the end of Abram's life? No. Sarah didn't live to see her grandsons. But it happened. Every promise of God came to pass, but every promise was delayed. I did a little study this week on my own about the coexistence of faith and doubt. And so give me about five minutes here to talk about this. Because what I have to deal with as I listen to this, I see some doubt in Abram's mind. And yet, look at verse six. Somebody read verse six out loud. See what the Bible says about Abram. Abram believed the Lord and he credited him. Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is, the money verse, this is the important passage in this whole section. And yet you and I know, even in this context, that Abram had doubts. Let's talk about this for a minute. I, I did a little study this week. And it seems like to me there are three different kinds of conviction or three different kinds of faith. There's a public faith or a public conviction. Uh, it's the kind of uh, conviction that uh, politicians or their stock and trade typically. In other words, it is what I say I believe. 
It's what I say I believe. Okay? My public confession. What I say I believe. But you and I know that when the rubber meets the road, when, when things get tough, sometimes what I say is not exactly what I do, right? So there's this kind of public faith, but there's also a private faith. Now, what I would say the private faith is, is what I think I believe. This is what the apostle Peter demonstrated when he said to God, on the, when he said to Jesus on the first Maundy Thursday, in the upper room, Lord, I will go to my death before I deny you. And by the next day, he denied him. He thought he had that kind of faith. Interesting. A public faith, a public conviction, and then there are private convictions. The kind of conviction that, that, I, that I think I believe in, uh, like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, or like me when I look at a distance at a, a state fair Ferris wheel, I want to ride that thing. And then I see that it's held down by sandbags. And the closer I get to it, the less conviction I have about that. Okay. All right. That's my, that's my kind of private confession. Confession. It, within me, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm convinced. And the further I go, the less convinced I become. But somewhere inside me, it just seems like that's what I'm convinced of. Until the time comes. Well, then there is core belief, core faith. And it's what I demonstrate. It is what I show you I believe. I have faith, demonstrable faith in the work of Isaac Newton. I will not jump out of a 10-story window. Because I believe in the law of gravity. But sometimes I will demonstrate in the, my faith in the law of aerodynamics because I'll, I'll get on an airplane and demonstrate I have faith in what the Wright brothers did. Okay? I have a, but the, the key here is I have acted on what I say I believe. Did Abram act upon what he said he believed? He got up and left and went. Now every day he had to have his faith renewed a bit. But according to Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God. And I think that's what's important here. The issue for Abram and for us is a demonstrable faith. It seems to me that it was what Abraham believed in verse 6 that mattered. He believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That core belief, I really do believe he believed in the promise. But even more than that, he believed in a person. God had become personal to him. There were times that Abram's faith wavered. Read um, the Hagar story, for instance. It's going to come, by the way, the next chapter. But he knew God. He believed in God. He believed God. He had a relationship with God. Belief can carry me through when I don't see yet what has been promised. And for Abram, it was every day for 25 years. Okay, Lord, I know you tell me that again. And so he takes him outside and gives him another visual aid. Look at the stars in the sky. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that before. But tell me again. Yes, your descendants will be as the stars in the heaven. Really? 
Lord, I'm having trouble with this. It's been a long time. Do you notice that God doesn't say, Abram, because you question me, deals off. <laughs> In the midnights of your soul, you ever said to God, really, Lord? I have. Can I confess that to you? Really? This isn't happening the way I think it was supposed to happen. It's taking way longer than I thought it was going to take. Really, Lord? You see, I think the issue here, and I don't want to be, uh, I, don't, I, I don't want to be inappropriate here because uh, the book of James talks about um, be careful uh, of being double-minded. But belief carries me through when I don't see yet what is promised. A belief in who God is, in how he is. So, my question. Even though it's been a long time, do you still believe? <laughs> what would happen if you stepped out again at this season in your life? Like maybe you did earlier in your life. What would happen? And I just want to ask you the question. Going back to the, to the statement of faith about Abram, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was seen as righteous all the way over. Thousands of years later in, in Hebrews 11, he's identified as the father of faith, even though you and I know that this season of his life for 25 years was hard every day. But he still believed. Here's my question. Do you still believe? When it gets hard, do you still believe? <laughs> That's a really, that word still is really important. Do you yet believe? Because I think that the Lord will credit that to you as if righteousness. That's that expression. As if righteousness. Do you still believe? 